All right, 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. Remember, 1 and 2 Kings are, were originally one book. The whole theme of both books are covenants and character. The Lord, His covenant and what He made with Israel, His faithfulness to it, His character that He never changes. The people, they made a covenant with the Lord. They were not so faithful. Their character changed from time to time, some good, some bad. And when we get to chapter 18, at this point, the northern kingdom was so bad and so unfaithful that God had to judge them. And so now the northern kingdom doesn't exist. And with the northern kingdom now gone, there's only one tribe left in the promised land, and that's Judah. The rest of 2 Kings is going to focus on the remainder of their time and what happened to them. Now, the good news about Judah, because we've had a lot of bad news with Israel, they didn't have a single good king. But the good news about Judah is that two of their godliest kings reigned during this last time period. And the first one we're going to meet tonight, King Hezekiah. And what makes these two kings godly character even more special is neither of them inherit good situations. Hezekiah's father was an idolater. He sacrificed Hezekiah's own brother to one of those gods that he worshiped. And he ceded Judah's sovereignty by becoming a vassal to the king of Assyria. But rather than blame the Lord, Hezekiah decides to walk with the Lord and trust him, the Lord, to lead the nation out of this mess. So chapter 18, we meet Hezekiah here in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Oshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty-nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. So here we see that Hezekiah becomes king after his father dies in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel. In other words, uh, what we covered last week and the week before hasn't happened yet. Hoshea has not revolted against Assyria, so Israel is still around as a nation when Hezekiah becomes king, takes the throne. And in contrast to the northern kingdom, which had their kings had very short reigns because they had coup after coup after coup, here we see Hezekiah has a very long reign, 29 years he reigns in Jerusalem. And then it tells us that his mother was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, we see this with the kings of Judah because the writer finds it very important to point out when the, the king's what the king's mother's descent was. Was she Jewish or was she heathen? The writer keeps pointing out who the mother is because these queen mothers had a huge influence, for good or bad, in the nation. Jezebel and Adaliah are just two examples of extreme evil that nearly ruined their nations. I think it's interesting that this lady's mentioned, and we don't find anything else about her because I can't imagine how it must have felt that your husband is an idolater. He sacrifices one of your children to his idol. Is it possible that his mom was the one who taught Hezekiah about the Lord? Is it possible that the example she led was the one that encouraged him to trust in the Lord instead of the gods his father worshiped? I don't know. I don't know. But when we consider everything she went through, being married to Ahaz, she was going to have a powerful influence either for good or for evil on this, this young man because she would either agree with what her husband did and have no problem with it 
Or she could blame the Lord because she didn't agree with it. Or she could run to the Lord over it. I think one of the things that we can learn from the fact that the writer keeps pointing out who the moms are is that moms have an important position of influence in their children's lives for good or for evil. I think that is something that we can take away. If you're a mom, your kids are watching to see how you respond to life circumstances, how you respond to the sins of others. They're watching your behavior. They're listening to your words. And while children are certainly responsible for their own decisions, I think I think we usually tend to strike one of two extremes. Like we see a bad kid and we go, he must have awful parents, right? Or we think that, well, they have their own choices to make, so what does it matter what we do? But neither of those things are true. Like we read in the Scriptures and it talks about that there are promises if we raise our children the right way, right? If we train them in the ways of the Lord, if our character and our conduct is a good example to them, we have promises from the Lord that that will have an impact upon our kids, right? But at the same time, our kids have their own choices to make, especially once they get older, right? So the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, that we do have influence, we do have impact, and they have important decisions they have to make for themselves. So while we recognize that they are responsible for their own decisions, we must also recognize that we have influence. And if you're a mom here tonight, have you embraced that reality, that you have influence, that you have a responsibility to influence, and that whether or not you take on the responsibility to influence them the right way, you're going to influence them. Have you recognized that, you know, if you're a mom tonight? And have you embraced that responsibility that God gives to you? Verse 3, the writer, as he always does, now gives the spiritual evaluation of King Hezekiah. He says in verse 3, and we can all breathe a sigh of relief, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. That's new. That's new. He, when it says he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, remember, this is, this is a time period that, that Micah was around as a prophet. And remember, what did Micah say? What is it that the Lord requires of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God, right? To do the right things, to obey the Lord, to love others. That's what it means to love mercy. It means to have that loyal love, that dedication to others. And then thirdly, to walk humbly, to have that relationship with your God. Other kings who came before him had done that. So Hezekiah, he's, he's a good king. He doesn't go off the path that pleased the Lord. He lives rightly. He was kind to others. He made his relationship with the Lord a priority. But here, here he says, he did that not like his forefathers. He did it like David did. He did it according to all that David did, his father, his forefather did. And that was the shortcoming of so many of his other ancestors. When we look at guys like Uzziah, Ahaziah, Jehoshaphat, other guys, they didn't get involved in idolatry, but they had, all of them, had some kind of compromise in their life. And, and what we, we see as we look at these kings, like particularly before you get to his dad, Ahaz, you had three good kings. I think it's Jotham, Uzziah, and I think Ahaziah. And, and those three good kings, it says they did that much right in the eyes of the Lord. But then it mentions, but they compromised here, 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 and here. And so what you see over time is you got, wow, we got three good kings, but the nation is just slowly rotting bit by bit. 
until we got Ahaz comes around, and now Ahaz is a full-blown idolater. So we have this history, and now all of a sudden we get to Hezekiah, and the writer goes, that was not how Hezekiah did things. He was not like his forefathers that were good kings, but they had compromises. No, no, no. Hezekiah loved the Lord. He was all in on following the Lord. He was just like David. Now, when you compare yourself to David, you're immediately saying he wasn't perfect because David was not perfect. David had failures. He sinned. In in a couple areas, he did horrible things. But David's heart even in spite of all those failures, his heart and his desire was to follow the Lord 100%. I have found it easier to work with someone who is a bit of a a loose cannon because they're up and down, up and down, because at some point I know they're going to grow and they're just going to walk with the Lord. I found it easier to work with someone like that than it is someone who just, it's really difficult to move them with the everyday compromises in their life. Because the individual who has those everyday compromises in their life, they've already come to the conclusion that what I'm doing right now is good enough. Their heart isn't fully yielded to the Lord. And so it's very difficult to get them to ever move at all from where they are. In contrast, you might have someone, you go, man, I I like this guy's zeal for the Lord, but he's a mess. You go, yeah, but he's not always going to be a mess. Disciple him, pour into him, and then as he receives, he's going to grow, and then he's going to become mature because the heart is, I just want to follow the Lord. That was David. David had a lot of failures, but his heart's desire was to follow the Lord 100%. And we see that in his reactions to when God deals with his sin. Well, Hezekiah was like that. He was fully desiring just 100% follow the Lord no compromises. And we see that in what he did. Verse 4, he removed the high places. He broke the images. He cut down the groves. He broke in pieces the brass serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. We'll get to that. There's a lot there in that verse. Let's start off. It mentions here in verse 4, he removed the high places. Remember, the high places, these are not pagan worship sites. These are unbiblical worship sites to the Lord. The Lord said, listen, if you're going to worship me, this is how I want you to worship me. And Israel said, ah, that's really complex. That's the high bar of entry. Lord, we don't want to go all the way down to Jerusalem or to wherever the tabernacle was at the time. We're going to build this high place, this worship site to you in this mountain here, and we're going to worship locally. We're going to worship you our way. God always had a problem with that. Well, when Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, was on the throne, he had this really wide open view about worship. He said, worship whatever you want, even the Lord. That's okay. You want to worship the Lord? I'm cool with that. But worship whatever you want, however you want, and wherever you want. It's up to you to decide. The good kings that came before Ahaz, they had basically developed a policy that said, yeah, this isn't what God says, but let's not rock the boat. Let's let them keep their high places. Hezekiah says, no, we're going to obey the Lord. We're going to do this his way. I find it so interesting that after such a wicked king like Ahaz, who's sacrificing his own child to a deity that doesn't exist, that the first thing that the writer mentions is his removal of the unbiblical worship sites to the Lord. 
and not the pagan worship sites. Why? Why does he put that first? I think all too often, maybe not you, but all too often believers can comfort themselves by saying, well, I'm not doing any of the awful stuff when we allow other compromises into our life. I mean, even in conversations I've had with like, like men who they're struggling a little bit in their walk with the Lord, and, and I'll ask them some questions like, hey, well, where are you at with the Lord here, 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 and here? And, and, and you see some shortcomings. And, I, and I'll bring up, I say, well, now you understand, these things need to change. And they're like, man, why are you giving me a hard time? I'm a good husband. I'm a good dad. I'm, I work hard. I provide for my family. And I'm like, that's great. You're better than pond scum. You're better than the wicked people on the earth. Wonderful. I think sometimes, though, that we can feel that way. I think all of us feel that way, but particularly men sometimes, especially in a world where we see men dropping the ball everywhere, where they're not being faithful dads, they're not engaged with their kids, they don't love their wives, they don't work hard, they're off doing their own thing, that we think to ourselves, well, I'm doing all the right things, you know? You know, how come, how come, you know, I'm doing all the right things, but yet, you know, my wife, you know, she doesn't want to be romantic with me. You could be married to a bum. Why are you treating me like this? It's like, You really need to ask that question when you're saying those words to her? I think this is where the problem comes in. Your kids don't appreciate me, and you get frustrated with the kids. I work hard. You know, we have good Christmas every year. Why why can't you just treat me with some respect? Then you don't understand why your teenager is so frustrated with you, doesn't trust you. I think There are times that we can be satisfied with a level of righteousness. I'm not talking about standing before God. I'm talking about like practical righteousness. I think we can become satisfied with that to a point where we'll tolerate things that we think are not that bad. I think the writer starts off with this because he says this is where the problem started. It's with this compromise. This is where it started. All the other stuff came because of this. And so he says, I want to point out, first of all, that he dealt with the root of the problem. And the root of the problem was that somewhere way back, God's people said, the Lord's instructions aren't that important. The Lord's instructions aren't that important, which obviously now brings a personal application to us. Do you believe that all of God's words are important? You know what? 27 years I've been teaching, pastoring, counseling, discipling people. I rarely run into somebody who tells me, I don't believe this is all the Word of God. I run into folks who could recite something akin to a Christian credo or an idea of what, you know, solid Christianity is. But those, it seems very frequently the person that can do that and feels very loyal to that it doesn't have any practical impact on their life. And so when you talk to them about, well, hey, the Bible says this about being a husband or a dad or a wife or, you know, a mom, there's a lot of resistance. The root of the problem is, do we believe that all God's words are important? I can say I believe the Bible. The Bible's the inspired word of God. Okay, love your wife like Christ of the church. You don't understand my marriage. Submit to your husband. You know, as under the law, submit to your husband. Wow. Okay. Submit to your wife as under the law. Well, yeah, said that's right the first time. Sorry. 
I said it right the first. Submit to your husband as unto Christ, right? Scratch that whole thing off the tape. <laughs> Submit to your husband as unto, unto Christ, right? Yeah. yeah, you don't know my husband. If I let him lead the way, all things will just get dropped. Well, maybe things need to get dropped so he can realize the responsibility he has. But that would be awful. Is it so awful to fall into the hands of the living God who loves you and cares about you? Listen, I, I'm preaching it to you, but I get it because that's the challenge we all face every day, right? right? The Lord says this, and I go, yeah, but. Do we believe that all of God's words are important, or is the Bible is the word of God just a creed, just a thing we say? Do we believe it's all, all of his words are important, or do we permit compromises because they aren't the worst things that we could be doing? I don't ever want to get to a place where I'm satisfied where I'm at with the Lord. I want to always be satisfied in Jesus, but I don't want to ever be satisfied where I'm at with, in my walk with the Lord. Like, I want to keep pressing in. Like, if Paul the Apostle could say that I've not yet apprehended that for which I was apprehended for, so I press on to the high price of my calling, then I think I need to be pressing in too. So he deals with that. Next it mentions here that he broke the images. This refers to those sacred statues that Ahaz had set up. He smashed them into pieces. He cut down the groves, refers to the Asherah poles that were used in the obscene worship rites to the goddess, of a- goddess Ashtoreth. And then it says something interesting here. It says he broke in pieces the brass serpent that Moses had made. What's that? Turn to Numbers 21 with me. Numbers 21. Now we're going back like 700 years when this thing was made. Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. And the situation was Israel is in the desert. They have been testing the Lord over and over again. They complain about their situation uh, because they had to go around uh, where the, the Edomites said, no, you can't come through our land. And they complain, God, why'd you bring us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Our soul, we hate this manna. Tired of eating spaghetti every night. So the Lord sent fiery serpents, verse 6, among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make you a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, the pole, with the brass serpent on it, it says, they'll live. They won't die from the serpent bite. So Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld it, when he, the, the idea is beheld, it's more than just look at it. It's, it means it's the concept to fix your eyes on it, the idea you're looking in faith. They look to that as going, this is my only hope. God said, if I look at this thing, I won't die. It says they didn't die. They lived. Pretty cool thing, right? Like, I mean, that's something you'd be like, guess what happened at church today, you know? Like, this is amazing. It's a pretty cool thing. Well, Israel saved that brass serpent so they would never forget what God did. 700 years later, here in 2 Kings, it's still there. It's still in existence, but not for good. 
Look at what it says here that they were doing with this thing. It says, he broke in pieces the brass serpent. The word broken pieces, it means to, it's a different word. It means to crush, to beat, or to pound. He crushed this thing. For unto those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. What? Incense, when you would burn incense to something, it was symbolic of praying to it. So the idea is they were coming to this brass serpent. Well, I don't know where it was. I don't like, like who was in charge of this thing and why was it out and about that people could pray to it? I don't know. I don't know if somebody came up with the idea and said, listen, praying to the Lord is not working. We need to pray to this thing again. It saved us 700 years ago. It'll save us again. And so people would come and they'd burn incense. And the idea is like, things are bad, oh brass serpent. You know, just like they were in the desert. Rescue us just like you did back then. I don't know if Hezekiah bashed the thing on the ground until it snapped or if he crushed it with his feet. But when the thing was all broken, he said, Nehushtan, which means it's a thing of brass. It's just a piece of metal. It's not alive. It can't help. We pray to the living God, not to lifeless metal. Can you not? Do you not like this guy? Like I read this guy and I'm like, I want to meet this guy in heaven. Tell me what happened when you broke that thing. Like, what were people saying? What was their, like, like what, what did you sense the Lord was telling you to say? Like, I want to hear the full story. He's an, an amazing guy that he does this, this object that, to be fair, if we look at the history, when guys came in and destroyed people's idols, they got mad and wanted to kill you. Remember when Gideon, God called him to, to lead the people, and the first thing he did was, he goes, my dad's, we got an idol right in my hometown. This thing needs to go. And so he goes out and destroys it in the night, and when they find out who did it, they want to kill him. This, this was not an easy thing to do. You're a king, it's an unpopular time because the king of Assyria, you're a vassal state now, your dad had messed things up. And he just comes out and he says, we're going to do things the right way. We're not going to worship this lifeless piece of metal, we're going to worship the living God. Now, I find that some people go, I really like this guy. And they'll say, you know, this is a guy, we need to be like this. Hezekiah has no fear. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He's going to do what needs to be done. We need more people like that. But is that really why he did that? Is that really true? Is that really what we need more of, people with no fear? I don't think that describes Hezekiah. Hezekiah did have fear. He feared the Lord. He feared the Lord. Too often we have men who have no fear. They also don't fear the Lord. We don't need people in office who have no fear. We need people in office who fear the Lord. We've had people who have no fear, and it's not working. We need people who fear the Lord. And he didn't not care what anyone thought. He cared what the Lord thought about his actions. That's what we need more of. Not fearless people who do whatever they think is best. He crushes this thing and reminds them, we worship, we pray to the living God. I remember I had an experience at, at Bible college. When I first got to school, it was a bit of a rough time for me because I didn't come from a, a Calvary Chapel background. I went to Calvary Chapel Bible College in Twin Peaks, California. And, and so I was a little bit of the odd man out. Like I didn't know who Chuck Smith was. I didn't know anything about Calvary Chapel's history. I was just there. And I had some theological issues too. And so in my first couple of weeks there, I ended up in some conversations that made it very clear 
Even, I had one guy tell me, you don't belong here. Student, not teacher. No teacher ever treated anyone like that. And I remember just crying out to the Lord and calling the Lord to the Lord, I need to know you're with me. I need to know this is you. I remember I called home, told my mom and dad, I said, I think I need to come home. I don't belong here. And like, no, we prayed about this. You prayed about this. You need to stick this out. I'm so grateful for the fact they didn't let me come home. But it was a difficult time. I remember crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need, I need to sense your presence. I need to know you're there. And, and there was a song that we would sing. It's an old song. Um, I think it's called Good to Me, but we always called it I Cry Out. It's I cry out for your hand of mercy to heal me. You know, I am weak, but I, you know, but I, and I need your love to free me, oh Lord, my rock, my strength and, and weakness. Come rescue me from trouble. And, and anytime they would do that song in particular, I would just sense the Lord's presence with me and, and I, that, that he said, well, you're going to be all right. It was almost like just kind of floating in a, in a sea of just you're going to rise above this, you're going to be okay. And it was a very powerful emotional experience with the Lord during those times. Well, a year later, as I'm still at school and, and I'm seeking the Lord and stuff, I found myself trying to recreate that feeling and that emotion because I was kind of sensing that the Lord was distant. And I thought, well, Lord, if I just get back to there, like if we just sing that song again, then I'll be okay. And I remember the Lord so gently speaking to my heart as I was reading through the scripture challenging me, saying, Will, that was where you were then. That's what I did in your life then. You're in a different place now, and I want to do something new in your life now. And I think sometimes we can get like the people of Israel with our past experiences, where we had these, we had these wonderful experiences with God, kind of these mountaintop experiences, and now we're in a valley, and we're like, if I just get back up to the mountain again and recreate that experience, everything will be fine. To which even if you get up to that mountain again, you're just recreating something in the flesh that God originally did by His Spirit, which means it will never be the same. So I find the Lord frequently challenging me, what are you trusting me for now? What are you, what are you moving forward in what I'm trying to do in your life now? I frequently, when, when worship music comes up, people you know, say, why don't we sing this song anymore? Why, why haven't we done this song in a long time? And, you know, and why are we doing all these new songs? And I, and I say, well, the Bible commands us to sing a new song to the Lord. When God's people, God's doing things in, in our lives, we're writing songs about it. If we're not writing any new songs, then I would beg the question, is God doing anything in your church? I'm, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be honest with you. And so I, I explained to the individual, I said, you know, when they would come to me about this, and I say, well, let me ask you a question. Why does that song mean so much to you? And they can tell you right away. Well, there was this time, you know, when I, we were down and out financially or when I was going through an emotional struggle, and that song always kind of kept me going. I'm like, praise the Lord for that. That's wonderful. What song is God doing in you now? What thing are you trusting him for now? Where is he taking you now that's stretching you and growing you now? He wants to give, do a new song in your life now, whether you want to or not. So, is that happening? I think this is where the adage comes up that sometimes we can worship worship. We don't worship worship, we worship the Lord. So, are you worshiping past experiences with the Lord right now? What are you trusting Him for right now? This afternoon, I was thinking that to myself. I'm like, what am I trusting the Lord for right now? And it was cool. I was able to come up with a couple things. I'm like, all right, I'm, I am being stretched. I am moving forward. 
Because the problem is, is when we stop moving forward, we start sliding backwards. Are you moving forward in your walk with the Lord right now? Or are all the wonderful things God, God does in your life in the past? Well, Hezekiah is clearly different than so many of the kings that came before him. Why? Why was he so different than everyone who came before him? Well, verses 5 and 6 tell us it had to do with his, his attitude toward the Lord, his relationship with God. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded pardon me, commanded Moses. I love, it just comes out and says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. The word there to trust, it means he was full of confidence. He relied on the Lord God of Israel. He said, Lord, all my eggs are in your basket. All of my hopes are in you. Everything is resting in what you have promised, what you have said. That's the direction we're going to go. I'm going to go. I have often been asked in times of difficulty, what are we going to do? Sometimes from my bride, sometimes from fellow staff members here at church, and sometimes from other believers who are just, you know, praying with me about something. I don't always have the right answer, but the right answer is always we're going to trust the Lord. That's always the right answer. We're going to follow Him. We're going to go wherever He leads us. Now, I think sometimes people hear that, like, like, I've heard this on the phone sometimes. So what are you going to do? You're just going to trust the Lord? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stop mocking me. Yes, that's always the right answer. But I think the reason we struggle with it sometimes is go, well, that's a really passive response. But I want you to think about how non-passive his trust in the Lord is here. Look at what trust in the Lord looked like for Hezekiah. We're going to take down all the pagan worship sites. We're going to put an end to all the unbiblical worship sites to the Lord. We're going to stop living in the past, and we're going to start looking for what God wants to do now. That's not very passive at all, is it? There's nothing passive about that. You see, trusting God ultimately is deciding to be obedient. Now, sometimes being obedient is more passive. Sometimes being obedient means we're going to do nothing. We're going to wait. That's okay. That there have been those moments, me and Bev have learned a lesson over the years that when we feel pressure, we know that's not the Lord. It's just not Him. So like when people start saying things like, well, if you don't make, if you don't make a decision now, you're going to lose this opportunity. Man, we back off real fast when that happens because we go, that's just not the Lord. The Lord does not. The world tries to squish us into a mold. Jesus does not. He, he leads us like a shepherd. He does not try to squish us into a mold and pressure us like that. He leads us like a shepherd, and he leads us beside still waters. He, he prepares a table before me as I'm surrounded by enemies. What are you going to do about all those enemies? Well, right now I need to eat dinner, right? There are times when, what are we going to do? Well, right now, what's in front of us that we need to do? If you're, you're in a, maybe you're in a situation right now, you've got no clue what to do, and maybe you even feel surrounded by enemies, okay? What are you going to do? I don't know, but I can tell you some things I do know. You're married, you got to love your spouse. You got kids, you got to invest in your kids. You still got to do all those things. So 
Trusting the Lord sometimes may feel passive, but it is not because it frequently involves being obedient in the things we know He wants us to do, right? We have things we need to do. You know, maybe you're single and you're like, I can't take this anymore. I'll never find somebody. Okay, I get that. That's a struggle. Well, I don't get it. I'm married. But my point is, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that's been a struggle. I know that's, that's not easy. I know sometimes you might look out on the horizon and you go, there are no prospects. Where am I going to find a prospect, you know? <laughs> Some of you are laughing a little bit too hard. <laughs> Go to gals giving. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but even though you have things you don't know, like where to take the next step, you do have things in front of you that you know God wants you to do. And I have found that when I'm in that situation where I feel surrounded by enemies, where I feel lost, and I don't know what God wants me to do, if I just keep trusting Him and being obedient with what I do know He wants me to do, I end up being led to that place where He wants me to be. Jesus said in response to a question, how do we know to work the works of God? And to summarize Jesus' answer, it was really simply, He goes, well, you'll know the will of God by doing it. Think that's such a cryptic, horrible answer, Jesus. No, it's actually just really simple. It's not cryptic at all. You'll find yourself in the unknowable will of God by doing the knowable will of God. Just stay there. Stay faithful. Trusting God means being obedient. It means you place your full confidence in His character, His promises, and that His commands are the best way to live. And that's what it says here in verse 6. It says, for he clave to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. Moses gave those commandments 700 years ago. But he looked back to that and he goes, that's where I need to be. I'm not sure about this and this, but I know I need to be here. And I'm going to trust the Lord that that's the best way to do things and that I'll find myself where he wants me to be by doing that. I love what it says here that he, he cleaved, he claved to the Lord. It's the same word used for marriage in Genesis 2. It means to fasten yourself to an object. It, it carries the idea of permanently being glued to something. Hezekiah decided, I'm going to stick close to, by the Lord's side in everything. Which way are you going, Lord? That's the way I'm going too. And then he did not turn aside. That's what depart means. If God was moving this way, he never turned to this way or this way. He just kept following the Lord as it concerned His commands, the knowable will of God. No compromises. No looking at some of God's commands as non-vital. He said, if God says it, that's, where we're do- that's what we're doing. And if God says, don't do that, then we're not getting close to it. And because of that, His testimony, His testimony is that there was no greater king in all of Judah's history. No greater king. That's crazy. Like when you think of how many good kings they had, you got Asa, you got Jehoshaphat, you got Solomon in his good days. I mean, Solomon was the wisest man in all the world, but it says that there were no kings of Judah that were greater than him. Wow. I want that to be my testimony. 
I want that, what it says about him in those two verses, I want that to be my testimony. We need to cleave to the Lord. Stick by his side. There's a cool promises all throughout the scripture, but a couple of places kind of summarize them about drawing near to the Lord. James 4 verse 8, you guys know this one. Draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you. Beautiful, simple promise. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14. God makes this promise to the nation of Israel, but obviously it certainly applies. Then you shall call upon me, Jeremiah 29, 12. Then you shall call upon me. You shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, says the Lord. I will be found of you. When we search for him with all our heart, again, these are, just, these are two guys who spoke after Hezekiah reigned. But those two sections of Scripture, they, they encapsulate, or they're, they're the best summaries of promises God repeatedly made over and over again to his people all throughout the Scripture. And the cool part is, is as we've been learning all throughout First and Second Kings, God keeps his promises. So look at what it says in verse 7. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered him whithersoever he went forth. What an incredible thing. God was with him. Do you know, I didn't realize this. I I thought I'd look it up because I was curious. How many people the Bible said this about? Only nine people in the Bible does it say that God was with him. You got Joseph, Phineas, Samuel, David, Solomon, Asa, John the Baptist, Jesus, and our man here, Hezekiah. That's a pretty exclusive list, don't you think? God was with him. I want God to be with me, don't you? And then it says that Hezekiah prospered whithersoever he went forth. He was successful. Now, 2 Chronicles 32, verses 27 through 30, mentions how God gave Hezekiah great wealth and great wisdom. That's part of that success and prospering. It makes you wonder when you read through these two books. Why didn't all the kings trust the Lord? And that's what happens when you trust the Lord. But as soon as those words exit my mouth, it makes me wonder, why don't you always trust and obey the Lord, Will? You ever find yourself in that spot where you've just been carnal? Like you've just totally blown it. And, and it's been like, like not like, like a one-time blow it, but like the last few days have just been bad. And you're kind of sitting there and you're just miserable. And you think to yourself, why do I get here? Like when I walk with Jesus, it's great. And if for whatever reason, I'm like, let's try not walking with Jesus for a day or two. It'll be fine, right? And then a couple days later, you're in this pit and you're like, how did I get here? And the Lord's like, you're doing things your own way. You're leaning on your own understanding. Your paths are crooked. They're not straight. But in the same way, it makes me wonder sometimes why I don't trust and obey the Lord all the time. It stirs me up to trust and obey the Lord when I read what he did here. And I think, I think that's the writer's whole point. Because remember, he's communicating to these exiles who are in Babylon now. He's writing to people who have blown it. 
And what he's laying out for them is he's saying, yes, you failed. But so did Hezekiah's ancestors. And look at what the Lord will do if you'll turn back to him and just simply trust in him. The objection that I will hear sometimes from believers is they'll say, well, I did trust the Lord. I didn't get rich. Things didn't get better in my life. I don't think that's the writer's point. As we will see later on in this chapter and the next one, Hezekiah had a ton of challenges still, even though he made this decision to follow the Lord, and the Bible says God prospered him, and and God blessed him, gave him wisdom, all these kind of things. He still had challenges. God never promises that our lives will be free of challenge or even free of sorrow, but He does promise He'll be with us to the very end. He'll give us good success in what He calls us to do, and He will give us solid ground for our feet in the midst of those trials. Now. Two particular areas are mentioned as successes for Hezekiah. It says, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him any longer. And then verse 8 says, he smote the Philistines even unto Gaza and the borders thereof from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. So his war with Assyria, or not his war yet, but he breaking away from Assyria, and then his, this war with the Philistines. When it says he rebelled against the king of Assyria, it means he stopped paying the tribute. Served him not means he revoked the vassal pledge his father made. We're not going to be a vassal state anymore. We're going to be an independent state. We don't owe you anything. So that was something God said he was successful in. And then secondly, he smote the Philistines even unto Gaza. Now Gaza, I know it's in the news a lot today. Gaza, so, eh, we got a few minutes. Gaza, Palestine, the word Palestine means land of the Philistines, okay? The Romans, when they expelled the Jews after the war of, uh, I don't know if it was the war of 70 or if it was the war of 125, but in one of those wars where they expelled all the Jews from the promised land, because they were so angry at the Jews, they renamed the land from Israel to Palestine because the Philistines were Israel's mortal enemies. So that's where the name Palestine came from. Uh, Palestine was not in existence prior to that. So that's why you see it on maps after that time period of the Roman Empire will say Palestine because they wanted to eradicate the name of Israel. So, so they, Palestine. So Palestinian just means Philistine, modern-day Philistine. Now, I'm not saying that to say Palestinians are bad. That's not my point. My point is this hostility between Israel and the Philistines is something that's been going on for a very long time. It's something that other nations that lived around that area knew existed to the point that the Romans did that to insult the Israelis to rename their land, land of the Philistines. So this is a constant thing that's going on. Gaza, which again we know today is that southern region, southwestern region of that area of Israel, it was the southernmost of the five royal Philistine cities. So the concept that you got all the way down to the southernmost city and you defeated that means you defeated everything. So when it says here that he smoked Gaza, it's saying he 
won battle after battle after battle after battle. This was crucial for Israel because during Hezekiah's father's reign, the Philistines had invaded Judah and captured Judean cities. So when Hezekiah took the throne, again, dad was not the best king. They had lost territory to the Philistines. Judean cities, Judean people were in control of Philistine power. So not only does he take those cities back, but he crushes the Philistines to the point that he takes all their lands as well. So he was victorious against the Philistines, and he broke away from Assyria, two things that his father had failed in from a geopolitical standpoint. He was successful here. Now, rebelling against Assyria is not something that the king of Assyria is going to ignore. And the Assyrians have, they had a vested interest in the promised land area because their real concern was Egypt. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib at the time, strongly wanted to take over Egypt. He felt Egypt was weak, uh, primed for the pickings, and his heart was, I want to take over Egypt. Now, he didn't, his son eventually did. And it was, I think, for a period of 10 years that they controlled all of Egypt, and then the Egyptians rebelled and retook their land. So if you're going to get to Egypt, that means you've got to go through Israel and Judah. So he's going to march very soon to deal with Israel who rebelled around the same time Judah did, and then eventually to deal with Judah. But we are out of time tonight, so we'll pick it up in verse 9 next Sunday night, Lord willing. So. But this does bring up a question, a question that I pose as I almost never talk about the titles of my message, but what makes someone great? good question. I think sometimes we, I think sometimes we like shy away from the idea of greatness because we associate it with pride. But the Bible uses that word to describe who Hezekiah was. He was greater. So Jesus talked about if you want to be great in God's kingdom. So there's not necessarily wrong with the idea or the concept of greatness It just needs to be from the right mindset. So biblical greatness is the idea of fulfilling God's plan for my life, having influence with people around me. So what makes a person accomplish that or achieve that where you are living out God's plan for your life and you're impacting the people who are around you? Well, it starts with something simple, no compromise. All of God's words matter to you None of them are non-vital. It's followed up with obedience to those things. And then lastly, and I think here's the important one, they're all important, but you help other people do the same. You see, when Hezekiah took that step out there and said, we're not going to worship this brass serpent anymore, we're not going to worship these idols anymore, we're not going to pray to the brass serpent, we're not going to worship these idols, and we're not going to worship the Lord unbiblically anymore. He was taking a risk, but he was also leading people in the right direction. And as a result, when we read the book of Isaiah, we see that there was a great revival during the time of Hezekiah, that it wasn't just Hezekiah that decided all God's words matter, and I want to obey them, and I'm going to obey them, but a lot of God's people made the same decision. That's what makes someone great. The greatest thing some of us might do is that we pour those truths into our kids. 
or into our coworkers or into our, our peer group of, of other guys or other ladies that we interact with in the body of Christ. That we make the decision ourselves that all God's words matter. I want to obey what he says and I want to lead others to do the same. Then, I would say we've accomplished the goal that God had for our lives, wouldn't you? Let's all stand. Lord, what a cool example of greatness. Lord, I think of David who prayed, Lord, thy kindness has made me great. Lord, it's always your love. It's never us, per se, that achieve any greatness, but it's your love that he would look upon us and say, I want to use that lady. I want to use that guy. That you would want to use each of us here, that you have a plan for our lives. Despite all we've done, Lord, all of our selfishness and our pride and our foolishness, Lord, you love us. You just love us immensely. You're so gracious, and you long to work in, in us and through us. So, Lord, tonight we embrace what you have for us, and we, we make that commitment that all your words matter to us, that we want to be obedient to them, and then, Lord, we want to influence others around us to do the same. God, would you fill us with your Spirit so we can do that, that we would, that we would be empowered to fulfill the commitment that I'm, I'm sure some people are even making right now, saying, Lord, I want to do that. Lord, fill us with your Spirit so we can live that out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.